Welcome to the new Cyber Frontier, bringing you the latest news and initiatives that focus on the development of cybersecurity economics. You don't have to be a computer or cybersecurity expert to get plugged in. Your host brings it straightforward, asks the tough questions, and brings the cyber world to a level of understanding for everyone. You can find us on the web at www.newcyberfrontier.com. Now join our host as he introduces the topic for today's New Cyber Frontier. Welcome to today's episode of New Cyber Frontier. On today, we start uh, a series with the IEEE blockchain on transactive energy. And uh, today's is uh, using blockchain. Today is uh, the first of that series that we're recording, at least. I don't know if you hear them in the same order or not, but have some exciting guests on with me. But uh, today we're talking about building the case for smart contracts. Uh, and we have Tamara Hughes, who is a principal at TMH Ventures, which is a CTO consultancy and an angel investor. So backing some some great new technologies, hopefully. Uh, and uh, also IEEE member of the standards uh, group 28 or 2418.5, which they could talk about that a little bit, but sometimes the numbers I get lost in. Um, but uh, Tamara, interesting, a small town in South Dakota. There's a background. Right. We'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, also we have on Umit Kali, who is the associate professor in energy infor- informatics at uh, Norwegian University Science and Technology. Um, and uh, he's the co-founder and CTO of Energy Exchange, uh, and also uh, leads the the, uh, or the vice chair of the working group for blockchain standards, which is the the P twenty four eighteen point five, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. But uh, well, a lot there, a lot of very um, good backgrounds, and uh, I know I didn't touch on everything we have there, uh, especially with Umits. But uh, welcome both of you. Thanks for joining today. Thanks, Chris. Very excited to be here. Thanks for the invite. Thank yeah. you very much. Definitely. So we'll start a little bit about your background from you. Umit, why don't you start and we'll go to Tamara after that. Sure. Um, I do have approximately 20 years experience in technology, uh, primarily in the field of energy, but uh, energy informatics might be the right definition. So for almost 20 years, I have been dealing with AI applications in the field of energy but for almost five years now we have a very exciting journey with blockchain together with many of the colleagues here globally especially under our working group so I'm currently as you mentioned as associate professor having some teaching activities in the similar area uh, we have courses on that and recently released a book about digitalization of power markets and systems from Springer so uh, actually our public service <laughs> Uh, in the global level is our contribution to the working group uh, with the different task forces and probably such kind of podcast activities are also counted as uh, byproducts of our uh, global activities together with the colleagues as well. Very short Definitely message. been a, a lot going on with that group that I've been a part of as well. Tamara, a little bit about your background. Uh, how do you got from that small town in, in the South Dakota to where you're at now? Sure, thank you. So yeah, a small town of about 2000 people in southeastern South Dakota, uh, bachelor's in electrical engineering from South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. I spent the bulk of my career in technology in some role or capacity from you know software engineering, writing custom operating system device drivers for the avionics, real-time embedded avionics systems at Honeywell, 
um, through a lot of the macro trends that we've seen in technology, global networking, digital content creation, delivery, web mobile applications, streaming, storage, and digitalization of the oil field supply chain. Um, MBA from Rice, four software patents along the way started, you know, as everyone realizing, uh, you know, blockchain wasn't going away, Bitcoin, you know, kind of springing it onto the world scene. And looking at it because of my work with the um, oil field services company from a supply chain perspective and realizing there was a, you know, there was value there beyond cryptocurrencies and started, you know, looking for standards organizations and places where I can contribute and participate. And, um, you know, that was how I landed with the, in the IEEE 2418.5 working group and the, their smart contracts, surprisingly, and the, um, use case task forces, uh, which, you know, the group is really leading the charge in the application and defining the standardizations for blockchain in something other than cryptocurrency. So very excited to be working with that group. Interesting. And we'll, we'll definitely get into today's topic after we take a break and we'll come back and talk about smart contracts and applying those in the energy space. We'll be right back. BlockFrame technology offers next generation blockchain managed trust and security. Unique non-fungible tokens are used to secure software bills of materials to provide data quality and security for every transaction in your supply chain. Deploy advanced peer-to-peer -peer product security, scale zero trust capability to millions of IoT devices, allow vendor tracking and accountability, and rapidly reset from compromise. Unchangeable, time-sequenced blockchain data provides next-generation security using machine learning trust algorithms and audit analytics. Start securing your supply chain today by contacting BlockFrame at www.blockframetech.com. Welcome back to New Cyber Frontier. On today, talking to uh, Tamara and uh, Umit uh, about smart contracts and uh, blockchain smart contracts. How does that relate to security on new cyber frontier? Uh, you know, building the future, looking at how do we now put something together that's proactive. We know that smart contracts started on blockchain. Blockchain started uh, what we know of cryptocurrency, but also that it is something to do with security in there, right? Or something to do with immutability, hear those terms. The flow, the, the, the how do we come to where we're at with blockchain? We're going to turn it over to Tamara and Umit on that. Give us some background. You know, what's the evolution look like to where we came from and how that relates to security and even energy as we're talking here? Uh, whoever wants to start, we'll go with uh, Umit. All right. Thank you very much. So actually, I will be starting from surprisingly very old time, ancient times. But I wouldn't keep the discussion in that ancient time that long uh, in order to have the consistency. Actually, the, all this law of codex started approximately 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia in Sumerian Kingdom. Uh, probably uh, you may know uh, Hammurabi Codex or Hammurabi King of uh, King Hammurabi uh, from Babylon or uh, in general from Sumerian society, which they are, they were the invented inventors of many other. Uh, stuff like writing, numerical systems, and many other stuff. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, uh, they were the inventors of the Law of Codex. But uh, Hammurabi, King Hammurabi was not the first guy. Uh, approximately in 2050 before Christ, uh, more than 4,000 4, years ago, uh, the Code of Ur-Nammu, before Hammurabi, 
Uh, he was the, the first guy who invented the law of codex. Of course, at that time, they didn't have even paper. They started to put process such kind of law of codex for the entire state and government, of course, on, on stone, right? This is the first, uh, first uh, version of the contract. Uh, just before it, it was the origin, uh, the, the state law, but before the state law, there had been a first sales contract approximately 120 years ago before Unnano. It was also on paper, uh, on, on stone, I would say, clay, but later on it became like a stone. So this was the start. Of course, we had other civilizations like Roman Empire and Anglo-Saxon law and US law and many other countries, they have their own version of law. Uh, we, we, we started to develop our own contracts, uh, national and international contracts on paper. And at the same time, um, like on digital versions like PDF and many other digital versions. So, but the storyline that we would like to refer to would be uh, starting uh, with a very interesting scientist. Uh, let's give the credit to Nick Zebo. He is a computer scientist and at the same time a lawyer uh, uh, from the West Coast of the United States. He came up with the first uh, like definition of uh, smart contracts in 1990s. I think um, this is the beginning of the story, but later on, probably after... Uh, further discussions about the definitions, we can come back to the applications like uh, like Ethereum-based or Hyperledger-based. So this is the very quick summary of the entire uh, timeline, I would say, very quickly. And, and I'll, I'll add on to that then, you know, the, with that background, then what's the definition today of what's a smart contract? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in Nick Zabo's words, it's a computerized transaction protocol that executes the terms of a contract, which will come back to what a contract is, uh, specific definition. The general objectives of a smart contract are to satisfy common contractual conditions, such as payment terms, and minimize the need for trusted intermediaries. Um, and a, in a, at a lower level, a smart contract really is just computer code. That you know, given specified conditions, if then else conditions, it's capable of running automatically to uh, to fulfill pre-specified functions, um, and the code can be stored or processed on a distributed ledger, and it generally writes any resulting changes. So anything that it modifies as far as existing transactions, it writes those changes back to the distributed ledger. Interesting. So we we went really through that history of smart contracts and what a contract is, where it came from, and in point now where it's digital. Can you connect that for our listeners to blockchain a little bit better? Uh, let's try to. Uh, actually, if we come back to the first uh, like original document, which had been just published with probably unknown writers, even though we know the name, uh, Satoshi, uh, in 2008 and nine, uh, they, it, in, in the paper, he or they or she uh, just mentioned about the first definitions of blockchain. And actually, one of the first very important uh, feature of blockchain is building the trust in an immutable track recording way, where we have digital track records distributed to the users. Uh, of course, it depends on the DLT, distributed ledger technology, which is the general terminology of blockchain uh, as a main tree or steam. Uh, in this case, of course, uh, if we are talking about digital contracts where we don't have DLT or blockchain as uh, like immutable track recorder or building uh, which builds the trust, uh, it does it is digital, 
it might have cybersecurity concerns, digital signatures, but the main difference between uh, such kind of even sophisticated, very sophisticated digital contracts and the DLT-based digital contract is just using the so-called on-chain mechanism, uh, which is the core of uh, the everything if we are looking at the anatomy of the entire system, where we immutably, of course, uh, theoretically you can break the system, but uh, I'm talking about in under normal conditions, we, we keep the track record of entire, uh, like track recording of everything, including the smart contract in the blocks in an immutable way and distributed to the uh, users. So in this case, uh, this allow us to, I will just add some uh, information that Tamara mentioned. Uh, it allows us to just convert the business codex or business rules or engineering rules or social rules, because it depends on if you would like to use it for governmental purposes. It's not entirely engineering domain but it can, uh, smart contracts can be used for that purpose as well. Uh, so we convert the business rules and uh, everything into the logic of the smart contracts and then uh, just process them inside the immutable track recording system of distributed ledger technology and just link them uh, in a proper way so that uh, we can track record it if needed, depending on the system that we will be looking for and just uh, enable, uh, enable the probably legal use of it later on probably we will, we will discuss the legal use of this uh, legal aspect later on yeah okay so good connection there thanks for giving that little bit of explanation now we're looking at it in the energy industry so tamara how does that everything that we've heard so far and what uma just explained how is that a value where does that become valuable to energy right so this is where blockchain and the value of blockchain starts to, uh, you know, bubble to the surface for the energy industry in general. So if we look at things like transactive energy and the uh, proliferation of distributed energy resources and the rise of the prosumer, which is somebody who is both a, pro a producer of energy and a consumer of energy, blockchain starts to uh, manifest as a effective and efficient mechanism or technology for optimizing and bringing greater efficiencies into some of those scenarios. So, you know, with an overall goal of um, facilitating or streamlining um, existing energy markets, as well as potentially uh, driving new energy markets, and ultimately reducing operational costs while enhancing grid resiliency and reliability security at the same time, that's where we start looking at blockchain. Um, you know, we've got various groups, if you will, that the 2418.5 uh, working group is exploring as far as groups of use cases, uh, including things like um, asset tracking, right? So installing a utility scale battery at a distribution substation, there's at least in ERCOT, there's, you know, a lot of paperwork, a lot of data that has to be captured and is recorded in multiple enterprise systems. So that's an example where a blockchain, a decentralized, you know, accessible ledger could write once, read everywhere kind of scenario. Um, renewable energy certificates trading is another, you know, big bucket of potential for, for blockchain DLT and smart contracts. I mentioned a little bit the prosumers, so we talk about and, and the proliferation of distributed energy resources, so decentralized and peer-to-peer -peer energy trading, getting into the financial side around settlement and billing, 
and then the the world of EV charging and management, a little bit of, um, especially in the mobility scenario where your car is not necessarily being charged at the same charging station all the time and where blockchain can facilitate tracking of the vehicle moving and the electricity consumed to charge the battery or if there's a, a grid service available where the battery from, from the car is being used to provide power back to the grid. So those are some of the high level uh, uh, use cases that the working group is exploring for the uses of blockchain in the in the grid space. Interesting. Let's take a break here from our sponsors. We'll be right back. We want to unwrap this a little bit. Be right back. BlockFrame technology offers next generation blockchain managed trust and security. Unique non-fungible tokens are used to secure software bills of materials to provide data quality and security for every transaction in your supply chain. Deploy advanced peer-to-peer product security, scale zero trust capability to millions of IoT devices, allow vendor tracking and accountability, and rapidly reset from compromise. Unchangeable, time-sequenced blockchain data provides next-generation security using machine learning trust algorithms and audit analytics. Start securing your supply chain today by contacting BlockFrame at www.blockframetech.com. Welcome back to New Cyber Frontier. On today with Tamara Hughes and Umit Kali talking about the use of blockchain and energy uh, securing transactions. We went through a quite a good explanation of um, prosumer and consumers, producers. We want to unpack a little bit and understand some of these these technical terms in the energy industry that relate to how we would use blockchain because so much of it sound like optimizing companies making society better um you know the prosumer the producer and the consumer become kind of interwoven here let's ex- unpack that a little bit and explain the value to individuals we i think we understand the value to society and to to um to companies and whatnot, but kind of break it down a little bit and say, now blockchain makes peer-to-peer. What does that mean to the average person and how can we interrelate? So it's, it's a great question. Actually, traditional our power system is supposed to be one directional uh, system uh, where we had bulk generators from one side, like thermal or hydroelectric power plants or nuclear power plants. and. Uh, it didn't allow us uh, two decades ago, I, I would say, approximately, to have two-directional power flow. So where we have a transmission distribution systems, and depending on where you are talking about ISO in the United States and Europe, TSO, DSO, um, and we had the consumers, and traditionally, like the consumers had been just like uh, uh, using the energy, but now. For almost uh, more than a decade, I would say almost two decades, right now we have two-directional power flow. That means uh, even uh, just normal users or consumers, uh, if we have photovoltaic panels at, at rooftop, uh, it is connect, if it is connected to the grid, then we are the prosu- producers and the users of uh, consumers of electrical powers. So that the prosumer terminology is coming, originating from that fact. So the second important thing is, this is bi-directional or two-way uh, power flow. And which is also making the power flow calculations and the entire physical system uh, a little bit more complicated. But we are talking about cyber physical system where we have telecommunication systems and at the same time AI or distributed ledger technology, it is our focus today. 
uh, where we have a very perfect match of uh, technologies which is decentralized like our systems right now with electric vehicles with like prosumers and we have also aggregators as new players and the definition of aggregator is changing as well right it can be a software company dso owned or community owned therefore i think uh, this is this is our grid is changing and evolving and there will be new markets local markets uh, which will be supplementary uh, to the regional retail market and at the same time wholesale market we do have uh, legal issues still to be resolved uh, in order before we will have functional full functional local markets but this is the trend mm -hmm. especially in germany which was leading a country uh, like with feeding tariffs and additional subsidies they're about to cancel the feeding tariff and come up with uh, probably some feature version of the local markets which is coming right now in the united states as well right 20, uh, for quarter 22-22 is also showing the same direction let me stop here and probably there will be other extensions of the, these discussions as well yeah yeah definitely so that kind of comes back to now everybody's a producer everybody's a consumer and the contract so now becomes legally binding between two people whether you're on a house selling your power for two hours to the to the grid or to a, another individual that's using it across the grid, just using the grid as a, as a transfer. And now that contract part becomes important. So Tamara, I think you had some insight on that and the kind of the legal aspects of that. How do we foresee that kind of moving forward? Right, so, so let's go back to the definition of a smart contract uh, from Nick Zabo, which is a smart contract is a computerized transaction protocol that executes the terms of a contract where implied to that is a legally binding contract. Okay, so what makes a contract, so a paper contract you, you sign today, you know, a mortgage or, you know, equivalent, what makes it legally binding? So generally accepted in the global setting is that a contract to be legally binding has to contain certain elements. And most jurisdictions, those elements include an offer, consideration, acceptance, and a, a mutuality of obligation, which means you, you, you show that you are agreeing to enter into a legal relationship. Okay, so offer consideration and acceptance, and then I'm agreeing to enter into this relationship. So how does that translate into computer code? And there have been a lot of people, a lot of very smart people looking at this to um, uh, you know, make sure that it can translate into computer code and what, if anything, needs to change with existing legal systems to facilitate that. Uh, the UK, I think, has been leading the charge on some of the efforts, or at least they're more, more vocal about their efforts in this. And in fact, just last Thursday on the 25th, their, um, their law commission uh, published their analysis of the existing legal system in the context of smart contracts and indicated that smart legal contracts are capable of meeting the requirements for the formation of a legally binding contract under the current law in England and Wales. That's critical. That's important. That means everything as it exists today in the legal system, a smart contract can become a legal smart contract without significant change to existing law. The only area that they acknowledge needs more definition, and this is somewhat obvious when you think about it, is dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. So where, what jurisdiction and what jurisdiction? If we look at the United States, 
you know, and you start thinking about the the you know federal law, state law, and then we get into the regulatory side where you have FERC, NERC, and the PUCs. You know, who has jurisdiction in the case of a dispute? So that's the area where further definition is needed. But regardless, I think this is a pretty significant step forward as it regards acceptance of a legal smart contract by existing uh, legal systems. That is interesting. So now if I'm just kind of reaching for for some you know connection to the technology. When we, we think about somebody, go back to my example of somebody with a solar cell that gives power across the grid, somebody else accepts it. Those communications, that contract, if we got to execute them on a distributed ledger, need to be really quick and and happen in seconds and find an agreement, a, a user, a supplier, and millions of these going back and forth between users and suppliers. How does the, the existing execution environments and constraints with smart contracts and the blockchain environment, are, are we ready for this? Yes and yes and no. <laughs> So this is where we get into the challenges of scalability with some of the existing blockchain uh, technology. So, so you know, Bitcoin is at a what you know six or ten transactions per second. I mean, Ethereum as it exists now, they're you know rolling slow, slow rolling to Ethereum 2.0 and changing the underlying consensus mechanism, but that's rolling to you know from about ten transactions per second to in theory ten thousand transactions per second. But there are purpose-built blockchains that were built specifically to address the transaction, the throughput issue. So, uh, you know, existing commercial technologies that are out there that are capable of, you know, tens of thousands of transactions per second to overcome that. But that is a significant consideration when, um, you know, starting to look at the implementation and which blockchain technology specifically will be used for any given use case. Yeah. Let me elaborate some points as well. If we divide the territory into two pieces, centralized databases and decentralized, mm -hmm. and uh, the protocols which are satisfying the trust uh, are the proof of X or the consensus mechanism. Some of them are very heavily computational intensive and also the, they use electrical power as well. For instance, proof of uh, work. Uh, and we have also lighter versions of it, like proof of authority, which is approximating to the centralized databases and the boundaries are becoming a little bit fuzzy and gray. So over there, it depends on the designer of the entire system. Do we need that trust? If we don't need that trust, it is better to use like something close to the centralized databases, like on the right hand corner of the spectrum, like proof of authority. And uh, at, at the same time, the second rule, uh, when we design it, uh, the on-chain uh, section, of our design shall be as light as possible so that we can reach the transmission per second values, TPS values up to 20,000, uh, which is reasonably good. But sometimes it, it is inevitable that we need to build trust with more high computational power like validators, then we should go and sacrifice to the left hand side. It's a matter of uh, how we will apply. Uh, there is a balance. There is no straightforward way. Yeah. Okay. So how you you guys are working quite a bit in the standards. Uh, and I know you chair this standards group. How are we moving that technology discussion towards something that is feasibly executable, scalable? Um, yes, I was, I'm co-chairing, but I think uh, Tamara has also uh, some, uh, like, uh, especially the op uh, very 
very uh, detailed information about the task forces about that but short summary uh, as a vice chair with claudio lima dr claudio lima uh, we have various task forces like uh, use cases uh, and interoperability uh, smart contracts and cybersecurity, uh, especially the, the smart contract use case uh, task force is very integral part of uh, our uh, working group probably tamra would like to talk more about uh, the task force smart contracts in, in connection with standards as well yep sure thanks to me yeah so um you know as we look at standardization and the role standardization plays let's let's consider for a moment the traditional it world so nobody even thinks about how a web application is going to talk to another web application or what uh, um, interfaces there are, if you will, for when you, you know, pop open a website on your browser. It's HTTP, it's TCP IP, it's, you know, those things are just, they're standard. In the energy world, an equivalent, or in the grid world, an equivalent would be IEEE 2030.5, a communications protocol that is standard. It doesn't matter what the underlying implementation, if you're using Python or Java or C or C++, none of that matters. It's adhering to the protocol. So that's where we're trying to go with the stand, with smart contracts is, is defining the, you know, for the use cases that the working group is establishing, what does the smart contract need to look like? What does it encompass? What does it have to contain in order to be a smart contract that meets the standard? And it gets a little interesting with smart contracts because as we've discussed, it's not just the technical aspect. Like if, you know, this is the offer, if the bid ask is this, then the transaction occurs. It's also what are the legal and regulatory aspects that come into play in the smart contract? What else has to be included to fulfill those obligations? And in some cases that may be, here's what's being proposed to be included in the smart contract because the regulatory side may still be playing a little bit of catch up, but in you know at a, at a sort of high level, where does that fit in? So with the working group, what we're trying to do, if you will, if you think of the grid in the traditional power flow, where you have you know generation, transmission, distribution, and then the distribution layer, we're we're working to define use cases down to what the smart contracts need to look like from the top at the generation layer all the way down to uh, the edge edges of the distribution layer. Interesting. So kind of as we're moving towards the end of our time here, um, how can people, you know, where do you need help? How can people get involved? How can we use this audience to say, you know, what do we need to bring to bear to, to, to move this forward? Yeah. Uh, let, uh, I started the storyline with the ancient Babylon story, and I will continue probably end uh, together with you with similar story, old good Babylon Tower story, right? Uh, everyone is talking about different different languages. This is exactly summarizes our industry, right? We have different layers and power systems, communication, cybersecurity, and many other stuff. So I think the standardization and pro uh, like handshaking in terms of legal issues, uh, like smart contracts, literally, help us to reduce the misunderstanding or just increase the coordination and synchronization or orchestration, however you name it, uh, in that tower, the entire ecosystem that we have, everyone is talking about different language, but it doesn't matter for us. We can come to a conclusion and then consensus and build something positive for the society. Therefore, the standardization and smart contracts both, with both concepts, are very, uh, um, very close uh, concepts which are close to each other. 
And I believe uh, our efforts in standardization and uh, in the scientific arena, <laughs> there will be new extensions, especially in legislative issues as well. The United Kingdom, uh, last week, I guess, Tamara, I, if I'm not mistaken, and Germany and other countries are coming up with legal and legislative issues. Then that means we expect that all over the world there will be uh, like global uh, events, which will they will come up with like digital law, uh, and legislative issues, uh, state-wise in the United States as well. So step-by-step, step, it will come to the other industries as well, starting from uh, assets, cryptocurrencies, and uh, governmental issues. And of course, we expect that there will be great extensions in the field of energy, which is one of the primary uh, elements of our civilization in general. So that means we expect that there will be new generations of DLT, blockchain, and smart contracts coming and which will penetrate the entire lifestyle and change many things in future, especially after pandemic times. Hopefully sometime it will be over soon. So these are like feature extensions. There will be AI, which will be penetrating to this arena. And there will be interoperability issues in terms of technical and legal issues, international and state law. Mm -hmm. uh, so there will be challenges and solutions like many other issues. And hopefully we will be a part providing some solutions together with our working group uh, to the global system as well. Okay. How would somebody uh, get involved? Uh, they can they can join our working group. <laughs> it is free for everyone. Uh, and probably, Tamara, if you would like to give more details about what does it look like in our daily operations, uh, how yeah. can a new member join? Yeah. yeah, I apologize, Chris. We probably should have had the website handy. <laughs> so... But you well, can, we can definitely link it when we put up the put up the post in the in the awesome. in the, the write up. So awesome. we'll definitely yeah. do that. So, <laughs> so there's a 2418.5 working group website. There's a blockchain um, initiative uh, website, and it's you know emailing through either of those um, uh, pages if you're interested in participating. And uh, it's you know we have several task forces, as we described, that focus on a specific element of blockchain and energy, whether it's cybersecurity, interoperability, we've mentioned use cases and smart contracts. So each of those groups are working on elements of what will become the standards document. And then we have the overall working group that comes together to kind of roll everything in to make sure that we're all you know, moving in the same direction. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but we're, you know, we're, we, it would practically be impossible to have too many, too many people, too many volunteers helping in this initiative. All right. There you go. So thanks for joining today. It's definitely been a pleasure, Umit and Tamara, to have you on. And I know this will resonate a lot with our audience has been very, uh, very much following some of the, the critical infrastructure, energy systems and uh, security as in those areas, as well as transactive energy. Thanks a lot. You heard it here on New Cyber Frontier. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of New Cyber Frontier. Remember to get involved. Often we think that someone else will handle privacy and security in the virtual world, but you are the only one truly in command of your virtual fate. Join our mailing list so we can keep you informed of breaking news and new releases. If you have an idea, if you have a question that you would like to hear answered, or if you want to get involved with our efforts, reach out to us at newcyberfrontier.com. 
We also encourage you to visit our sponsors' links as they are the ones that really make this show possible. I want to thank each of you for supporting the show, and we look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of New Cyber Frontier.